Okay, it's seven o'clock according to Apple, so it's time for us to begin. I'm going to, uh, as is my want, try to tell you what I hope to do tonight and then pray and then do it. So this is our second class, and I want to begin by reviewing briefly last time, and then I want to move on to this class, and hopefully we can get through the preface and the first chapter. We'll see how we do. Before I say any more, let me give you your homework for next time, which is all the way to the fourth chapter. So you, next week you have three chapters total, two, three, and four. So that we're not, not too fast, and they're not too long, and one is a really short chapter. So just to be clear, reviewing last time and then looking at some background and then the preface and then chapter one. Are we all together? Does that sound like a plan? You're definitely going to need your book. Right, two, three, four for next time. You're definitely going to need your book, and it is helpful if you have a Bible, if you bring it, uh, probably starting with this class and going forward. All right, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your presence with us, for your love for us. We thank you for your generosity and the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of this day, for the gift of this community of Holy Cross the body of Christ locally, of which we're a part. We thank you for this opportunity to focus and sit at your feet and learn, and we pray, like Mary, that we would give you our single-minded devotion and focus. Open the ears of our hearts to hear what you have to teach us. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the things that you want us to see. Use this class to build your kingdom in each of our lives and in all of us together. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so more sips from a fire hydrant definitely tonight. So just briefly to go over last time, we talked about Lewis's life, uh, born in 1898 and died on November 22nd, 1963, and I argued that there are three indispensable things you need to understand about his life. One is it's a life of hardship and struggle, and we talked about that, and it may come in again tonight, but it's very important that we always keep in mind the degree of pain and suffering through which a book like this came. It's really quite remarkable, the context out of which it comes. It was a life of incredible fullness in every possible way. England, Ireland, where he was born and grew up, France, where he fought, and two of his friends were blown up right in front of him. And it was a life of learning in every possible sense. His father's house had so many books that he said it was like being in a field and going to look for another blade of grass. There were that many books. He, and he always loved reading. He always loved books. And he's a phenomenal reader and therefore a phenomenal writer. And if you ever want uh, a chance to, to learn how to write, read his letters. Um, there's one of my favorite books of his is Letters to an American Lady, for those of you who know his books. And he's so good at simple sentences. And we all make things way too complex. Subject, verb, object. The simplest is always the best, he says to the woman again and again. We talked about his theology, and I tried to argue that everywhere in Lewis, it doesn't matter where you cut him, it just opens up to heaven and hell. The screw tape letters is a great example. It's just an innocent story of a son living at his mom's house. What's the big deal? And yet, what Lewis is writing about is actually heaven and hell is at stake as they interact, a, a mother and a son in a house. 
go to church, go to work, um, do various chores. It's all very apparently mundane, but with Lewis, there's nothing that's ordinary. It always stretches all the way, ultimately, to the vista of heaven and hell, and it's no accident that he wrote a book like The Great Divorce, which is about both of those things, as I hope that we'll see in a moment. And we talked about his anthropology, and we said that sin in Lewis is self-cleaving, turning inward. And we said in Lewis that sin over time is addictive, and it calcifies. And the more you sin, the harder it is not to sin. There's a cycle and a gravitational pull to sin. And so hell is actually a possibility built into creation. And hell is a triumph of self-will. I didn't quote this to you last time, but in his lectures on Paradise Lost, which formed the book ultimately, the preface to Paradise Lost, one of the things that Satan says is, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. It's, a tri- it's very much a triumph of self-will. Remember, remember my line from last week, Satan believes his own propaganda. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. There's only two kinds of people in the end, those to whom God says, thy will be done, and those who say to God, thy will be done. That's Lewis's theology of hell in a nutshell. It's permanent, calcified self-choice into something, and it can be lots of different things, something that isn't God that you make into an idol. And the human heart is an idol factory, so we have a nearly limitless amount of possibilities of things that we can fall in love with and idolize other than God in the world he's given us. And you're going to meet lots of people, and what a surprise, they all have different idols. And they're shocking, some of them, ultimately shocking. You're going to meet a bishop whose idol is free inquiry, and he's actually standing in the middle of hell, and he can't actually see it or admit that it is hell, because to do that, he'd have to close his mind And he's utterly devoted to the process of free inquiry. And as Chesterton says in one of my favorite sayings, the whole point of having an open mind is to close it on something solid. But the bishop never closes it on anything. So he's just sitting there in the middle of hell, but he can't admit it's hell because it's all about the questions. It's all about the process. It's all about the inquiry. You never come to a conclusion. So his idol is intellectual inquiry and the quest. And there he stands in hell right in the, in the middle of hell, and he can't admit it. So deep is his level of denial. All right, now, <clears throat> on to tonight's class, and you're going to need your book, and you're definitely going to need your bike <clears throat> to keep up. You want to keep in mind two things of historical background in terms of last time. The, the World War II part of this cannot possibly be overemphasized. Uh, We just had the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. I've told some of you may remember, my dad grew up in New York, our son lives there, so everybody has their own sort of perspective on these things. It was my day off, if you can believe it, on Tuesday. So I was sitting there looking at the TV, but it it, it just, uh, it marked me for life in every sense. And I watched for the first time the 60 Minutes piece which is on the 20th anniversary, they did it. And if you uh, really want a recommendation, everybody here needs to see it. It's it's incredible. There was a a camera crew with one of the key figures in the FDNY that was actually doing a documentary that day. So the 60 Minutes piece is basically the whole day just from the perspective of the 
Fire Department of New York. It's absolutely riveting. Um, but the thing that I want you to keep in mind is just the, the apocalyptic nature of that day. I mean, you've got, you've got fire, and you've got ashes, and you've got dust, and you've got unpredictability, and you've got death, and you've got darkness, and, and you've got evil. And, and you've got all these phone calls, which are the last phone calls people make. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, if that's you, what do you say? That's a Christian question, you know. If you're on the Titanic, and it's about to go down, and you only get one thing to say, and you're talking to your, and then fill in the blank, spouse. I mean, these are what the phone calls are. And every single phone call that we have, and you, you ought to go on the 9-11 memorial, because they're all there now, transcribed. They're incredible to read. But they're all, they all say the same thing, ultimately. I love you. I love you, I love you, and then oblivion. And that's the kind of backdrop that Lewis is ministering in. <laughs> Remember I told you last week that the RAF at one point, and he's ministering as a chaplain to the RAF, the average life expectancy is six weeks. That still blows my mind. So death is everywhere. So no wonder he's talking about heaven and hell, and he's thinking about evil, and he's thinking about choices, and he's thinking about eternal consequences, and he takes evil with utmost seriously. By the way, as we go running past, you know why in a hundred years Tolkien and Lewis will still be read and almost nobody else will? It's because they take evil with ultimate seriousness. One of the incredible ironies of the 21st century is the 20th century had more evil incarnate in history than ever. And we've com almost completely lost our capacity even to talk about evil, much less to take it seriously. And if you take any book of Lewis and any book of Tolkien, I mean, you read The Lord of the Rings, you have to deal with evil. And then you get our Lord, and he says, I saw Satan falling like lightning. In Jesus' world, evil is a reality, and the devil is real, and so also for Lewis. And that's the world that we're entering. The second thing to say and I did not say this last time, but I want to make sure to say it this time, is Lewis is in a period of enormous productivity, even though the consequences are so dire, and he's doing things like going to the BBC in London, where the, the Luftwaffe is coming uh, every single day, and it's the Blitz, so the, the headquarters has been partially blown up, and he has to climb over things just to get there to do the radio broadcast. Um, the, the thing that's amazing is he's, he's in a time of enormous productivity, and he has this ability to correlate all these things. So he's been asked to do lectures on Paradise Lost. That's one of the things he's doing. That's where you get preface to Paradise Lost. He's written the screw tape letters, and you know all about that. So that's the devil and temptation and hell. And then you get the great divorce, and you can see how it's all spiraling together. And then let's also bring in one other thing, which is that group of his friends. You remember the Inklings? They meet on Tuesdays at the Bird and the Babe, right? The Eagle and Child, the pub in Oxford. And three of his friends are Dorothy Sayers, who's a long story for another time, and, and uh, Charles Williams, uh, the great Scottish novelist and philosopher and, no and theologian. And the three of them develop a magnificent obsession with an interest in and devotion to Dante's divine comedy. All this is happening in the background, and all that is crucial for you to understand because that's all going to go into this book. It's all swirling in his head. He's thinking about Milton. He's thinking about Paradise Lost. He's thinking about Satan. He's thinking about Satan believes in his own propaganda. Now, <clears throat> to begin tonight's class, let me say just a few words about why this book is so important before we actually get to the text. 
I know you think we're going to not ever get to the text, but we are. It's a book about eternal perspective, which is the heart of the way that the whole Bible looks at the world and the way that Jesus conducts his ministry. This is the eschatological vision that I've talked about. This book doesn't let you off the hook with the fact that whatever else is going on, heaven is incredibly glorious and hell is totally awful. If you want a tip, pay attention to the adjectives in the book. Did you notice the way that the town was described? We'll get to it in just a second. Dingy, dull, it's always twilight. It never gets dark, but it never gets light. And you can never go on a journey and reach the end of town. It just kind of keeps going and going. It's drab, it's boring, it's mean, it's nasty. Whatever else you want to do, you don't want to be part of this group of people. They're not fun people to be with, as we'll see in just a second. And, and then the bus driver and the bus show up, and how are they described? Totally the opposite. It's majestic, it's glorious, it's heraldic, it's, it's, it's fantastic, it's, it's beautiful, and on and on and on. And the bus driver and the bus are this massive contrast to all these people and this terribly dingy place. And Lewis is firing up our imagination because we have far too uh, secular, if at all, view of heaven and hell. Uh, It's something that we don't think about even though we're going to spend eternity there. And we inherit a tradition where most of our uh, forebears, our, our fathers and mothers before us in the faith, thought about heaven and hell all the time because life was short and they knew it. And death was a reality, and they knew it. And we've lost touch with a lot of that. So Lewis is crucial for firing up our imagination. Number two, choices matter eternally. And I mentioned this last week, but I want to make sure you take it down. And this will be the first biblical reference of the night, Galatians chapter 6, which is at the heart of the, the inferno of Dante that I just referred to. It's just a little throwaway line, but it's very important in our context. <clears throat> Do not be deceived, verse 7, chapter 6 of Galatians. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, one will also reap. For what one sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. So, sow a thought, reap an act, sow an act, reap a habit, sow a habit, Reap a lifestyle, sow a lifestyle, reap a destiny. Right? Boom, 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 boom. And there's a pattern there. And and Lewis's characters in this story are all these apparently ordinary people that have ended up in this very bad place because of all the choices and the sowing of seeds that they don't realize apparently that they've made. It's something that we have to think about. Thirdly, it's a book which reeks of contemporaneous culture because the people in the book are obsessed with rights. Did you notice that? You got far enough into the book? Everybody's so easily offended in this book. They must all be on social media. (laughs) And they're constantly talking about their rights, just like Satan in Paradise Lost. This is my place. Better to rule in hell where I'm in charge. I'm going to believe my own propaganda. I have, don't you take this away from me. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. One of my friends who's a 
pastor, one of his favorite things to do when he's with a child who's acting up in his office when he's doing counseling, he takes out his keys and he shakes them at the child and says, mine. He says, it always works. You know what happens? The child can't stop looking at the keys, desperately wants the keys, and eventually he caves and gives the keys, which the child then plays with for about 15 minutes, which causes a distraction so he can get on with the counseling session. But the, but the child instantly wants the keys that are not his when my friend, the priest, says, mine. <laughs> he just shakes him. Three years old, it works. Five years old, it works. Seven years old, it works. What is it about us? We're, we just want our rights. That's mine. <clears throat> what's mine is mine. What's yours is negotiable. So it's a, it's a deeply relevant book in every conceivable way. There's lots more to say, but that's a good starter. Eternal perspective, choices matter. There's such a thing as truth with a capital T. Weekends were not made for Michelob. It's not about being obsessed with rights and on and on. All right, let's get into the preface and let's get started. <clears throat> so you're going to need your text. And the preface is not easy. I was um, chatting briefly with a couple, and they didn't find it um, super user-friendly, and I understand that. It's pretty high-flying language. But remember, I told you to slow down with Lewis, and with Lewis, everything is important, so let's make sure we also slow down. So let's start with the title. Do you remember what I told you last time? What was the original title? Right? Going home, right? Colon, a fantasy. Or who goes home, a fantasy, right? Who goes home, a fantasy. And then the grand divorce, a fantasy, and then uh, today's title, <clears throat> the, uh, the Great Divorce, A Dream. And here's the opening paragraph. Look at your preface because you're, you're definitely going to need your text. Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. If I've written their divorce, this is not because I think myself a fit antagonist for so great a genius, nor even because I feel at all that I know what he meant, but in some sense or other, the attempt to make that marriage is perennial. The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either-or, that granted skill and patience and above all time enough, we have some way of embracing both alternatives that can always be found, that mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. You can have it all, right? Sounds like the North American myth to me. Now, Blake is a whole long story for another time. Lived from 1757 to 1827. He was an unbelievable genius and also an unbelievable mess. His theology, especially early on in his life, is just dreadful. I mean, really, really bad. He was a poet. He was a painter. He was a writer. He was a printer. But the marriage of heaven and hell, the thing that you need to know that Lewis is after is it's everything all together. He wants it all. So one of the things he says, just sort of in passing, and again, it's incoherent. So even Lewis says, and if Lewis says he can't figure out what he meant, then he really can't figure out what he meant. But, but one of the things he says about hell is, hell's real good, let's include it, because it's got lots of energy. And you're like, what? But this is the kind of book that it is. It's, it's everything together. You know, a little bit, little bit of Buddhism here, a little bit of Hinduism here, a little bit of Taoism here, and we're all going up the same mountain, and we all, at the end, sing Kumbaya. But that's not, that's not it. That's not it. And Lewis understands that they're unavoidable choices, and he, he sees the syncretism that Blake is, is playing with, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. Look at the first sentence of the next paragraph. This belief I take to be a disastrous error. Now, <clears throat> to, let's put this together with the other little thing that I wanted to make sure you noticed. 
which is the opening statement. It's not just that you need to pay attention to the title. You got the opening statement. Did everybody look at that? So first of all, it's from George MacDonald. That's super important, the source. We talked about him. Lewis said about him, quite remarkable this, outside of Jesus Christ, no one has influenced me more than George MacDonald. That's quite a statement, especially from someone like him. And it's no accident that MacDonald appears in the, in the title page because he's actually going to appear, as we'll see later, in the book. Very much like uh, Dante's guide in the Divine Comedy, MacDonald is a sort of guide for Lewis, who's the narrator, and we don't know that yet either, in the book. What a surprise. MacDonald is a guide. But the quote from MacDonald, don't miss it, it's crucial. No, there's no escape, there's no heaven with a little of hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. And here's Lewis in the second paragraph making the point in a more detailed way. You cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you need to leave behind. That's a reference to Mark 9 and his metaphorical statement that if your eye causes you to sin and is going to lead you to hell, tear it out, which doesn't mean to tear out your physical eye, but it means to tear out that which is leading you away from the Lord by way of temptation. You are not, we are not living in a world where all roads are radii of a circle and we're all, if followed long enough, will therefore draw gradually nearer and nearer and meet at the center. Rather, we're in a world where every road after a few miles forks into two and each of those into two again. And at each fork, you must make a decision. Even on the biological level, life is not like a pool, but like a tree. It does not move towards unity, but away from it. And creatures grow further apart as they increase in perfection. Good, as it ripens, becomes continually more different, not only from evil, but from other good. That's a remarkable paragraph in every sense. And one of the ways you see that in the first chapter, which we'll get to in just a second, is the fact that the bus driver, first of all, he has no lines, if you remember. And did you notice he gets evaluated? He's described beautifully. I mean, he's this wonderful person and clearly very authoritative and very focused and, and very calm and very centered. And he doesn't get any lines. And all the people have all these massive negative evaluations of him, right? It's incredible because that which is good threatens evil. Even at that superficial level, they can't handle it. It's too good already for them to handle, so they have to reject it. Then he goes on, so number one is Blake's wrong in the marriage in hell, and you can't have it all, right? That's number one. Number two is it's not syncretism, and all roads don't leave in the same direction. Number three is if you're going to deal with the way that the world is and you're going to understand this book, one of the most important themes in terms of the scariness of hell and the importance of getting away from it is repentance, which is the next paragraph. I do not think that all who choose wrong roads perish, but their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. Some, we said that, we talked about this last week, for those of you here in the questions, cannot be put right, but only by going back and finding the error and working it afresh from that point. You just can't keep working the numbers. It's like the bottom button of a coat. If it's off, all the other buttons can be just fine, but you're out of alignment and you've got to start over. 
If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate reserves of hell. And just one line from his wonderful essay, The The Problem with X, which is one, in my mind, one of the keys to understanding all the characters in the story. So this is his theological commentary, but this is this this thing about choice. And I want to make sure to emphasize this because this is Lewis's theology in Lewis's own words. Be sure that there is something inside you which, unless it is altered, will put it out of God's power to prevent you from being eternally miserable. While that something remains, there can be no heaven for you, just as there can be no sweet smells for a man with a cold in the nose and no music for a man who is deaf. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which itself will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. This matter is serious. That's a further elucidation of paragraph three. Everybody see where I am? Now, just a word about repentance, that big word. We've talked about this before, but it's, it's super important that we, that we pause on this because it's such an important theme in Lewis, and we got to get our thinking straight in terms of what repentance actually is. And I've, I've shared this in a sermon here before. It's been a while. Not all of you are there. I want to make sure we get it clear. So repentance has three directions in the New Testament. And in order to fully repent, you've got to do all three. And one of the things about Lewis, um, how many listeners have read the Chronicles of Narnia? I'm hoping a lot. So when you think repentance, think um, Eustace and the dragon, for those of you who know the scene. It's, a, it's an incredible story of repentance. I mean, Eustace is a terrible, crummy kid. And he falls asleep in a den of dragons and actually becomes a dragon, which is the way that you think of him when you first meet him, because he's really rather ghastly to everybody around him. And having discovered that he's a dragon, then he has to get out of being a dragon because he really doesn't want to be one. And Lewis has this incredible portrayal of repentance. It's a process. It's long. It's difficult. And it's, the scene is so powerful, but it's unbelievably painful. So three turnings. First, you have to turn to the past and say, I'm sorry about what I did. That's one turn. The second thing is you've got to turn around in the present and say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go in a different direction. Now, the crucial thing about these um, three moves in repentance is if you say you're sorry and you turn around in the present, that's where a lot of people stop. And my illustration of this is when I was doing the tennis team and we were playing against Middlebury in Vermont, and we were driving from Maine, and we won't go into all the details, but I was uh, victimized as captain to drive the daggum car, and we were on the way home. We were all tired, and we were all talking about something that we thought was terribly important, and I, I will never forget this moment. The sign said, Montreal, 45 miles. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, no. And we had literally been going over an hour on the interstate the wrong way. And this is with six other tennis players in the car. Now, here's the thing, okay? I got really sad that it said Montreal 45 miles. I also wanted to decide to go a different direction. But here's the thing. If I stayed sad and stayed decisive that I wanted to go a different direction, I would still be in the car going to Montreal, The third indispensable thing that you have to do after the two turnings is you have to turn toward the future and say, now I'm going to go in this direction. And without all three turnings and all three emotions, that is to say sorrow, 
toward the past, decisiveness in the present, and, and willingness to move toward a promise in the future. You haven't really repented. <clears throat> in his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley writes that the church's integrity problem is in the misconception, and I quote, that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. He goes on to say, it's revival without reformation, without repentance. And one of my favorite characters from the 19th century, <clears throat> the, the great evangelist <clears throat> um, D.L. Moody, in his writings, says it this way. Professor Drummond once described a man coming into one of our meetings and saying he wanted to be a, a Christian. Well, my friend, what is the trouble? He doesn't like to tell. He's greatly agitated. Finally, he says, the fact is I have overdrawn my account, a polite way of saying he'd been stealing. Did you take your employer's money? Yes. How much? I don't know. I haven't kept track. Well, do you have an idea that you've stole at least $1,500 over the last year? Yes, I'm afraid that, that it's at least that much. Now, look here, sir. I don't believe in a sudden work. Don't steal more than $1,000 this next year, and then the next year, don't steal more than $500. In the course of the next few years, you will get so that you won't steal any. If your employer catches you, tell her you're being converted, and you will get there eventually if you just steal less and less over time. This is Moody's story to get us in touch with offense. My friends, he says, this is a perfect farce. The New Testament says, let him who stole steal no more. That's what the Bible says, right? Let him who steals, steal no more. It is an about face. Take another illustration. Here comes a man and he admits that he's drunk every week. The man comes to a meeting and says he wants to be converted. Should I say, well, you don't want to be in a hurry. I believe in doing work gradually. Don't you get drunk and knock your wife down more than once a month? Wouldn't it be refreshing to his wife to go a whole month without being knocked down? Once a month, only 12 times a year? Wouldn't she be glad to have him converted in this new way? Only get drunk after a few years on the anniversary of your wedding, maybe. Or after Christmas, and then it will be effective because it's gradual. Oh, I detest all that kind of teaching. Let us go to the Bible and see what the Bible teaches. And oh, yes, it's serious about repentance. Let us believe it and go and act as if we believe it too. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We, we don't process it when, when we've been wrong. That's not what we ask for. Well, could you at least modify your behavior slightly? <laughs> That's not what you say when you've been really offended, right? The, the car drives over your, your grass and mows down your mailbox. And you, you, you say, well, you know, maybe next time only hit the grass, don't hit the mailbox. It just, it, not, none of it works. This is a very serious doctrine of repentance that Lewis is presenting you to, and you can't understand this book unless you understand repentance. All right, back to the text. But what you ask of earth, now we're in the mysterious section. Earth, I think, will not be found by anyone to be in the end a very distinct place. I think earth, if chosen instead of heaven, will have turned out to have been all along a region in hell, and earth, if put second to heaven, will have been in the beginning a part of heaven itself. Fascinating stuff just for you to contemplate. We'll get, we'll get into that a bit more. So there's really three big themes. No to syncretism, <clears throat> no <laughs> to Blake, and yes to repentance as he starts out. All right, everybody with me? All right, now, let's see how far we can get in the first chapter. It's totally loaded. I, deba I actually debated, because it's so short, whether I should read it, but I'm trusting that you all read it. I did talk to one couple who, whose son read it aloud to them. So good on them 
uh, for doing their homework. I hope that kind of thing helps. It really does. It, it, this book works if you read it out loud. The characters have a way of electrifyingly jumping off the page. All right, now, let's get to the, let's get to the actual text, and let's look into the actual way that this all works. <clears throat> so here comes this place, and, uh, well, I might as well read, let me at least read the first couple sentences. It seem, I seem to be standing in a bus queue by the side of a long, mean street. Evening was just closing in, and it was raining. I had been wandering for hours in similar mean streets, always in the rain, and always in evening twilight. Pay attention to the language. Notice that word always repeated like a liturgical cadence. There's a stuckness to this place already. <clears throat> now, let me say three things by way of um, technical background, and then I'm going to launch into the content itself. Um, some of this may be a little abstruse, but I want to make sure you get the idea. So first of all, think Dante's Inferno. And the key idea in Dante's Inferno that I want to make sure that you get in touch with is something called contrapasso, which is the Italian word for counterpoint, basically. And it's basically the idea of Galatians 6 that I read to you, as you sow here, so you also sow there. So in every one of the nine circles of hell that Dante portrays, the thing that's so terrifying about the book, and it's an absolutely splendid read, I highly uh, commend it to you, especially some of the more um, excellent modern translations. Dorothy Sayers, by the way, uh, did a fabulous translation. But the thing that's so terrifying about it is, um, as you live here, so you live there. So when you get to the very bottom circle, you get, uh, you get Cassius and Brutus, and then you get Judas, and then you get at the very bottom of the last circle of hell, Satan encased in a block of ice. And there he is, uh, believing his own propaganda, reigning in hell all by himself. And it's just, a, it's just this frightening, dark picture. And that's, that's the figure of Satan. It's all, it's all about him. It's all about self-focus. It's all about self-worship. It's all about self, self, self in the spiritual sense. What does he say to Jesus in the temptations? All you have to do is just worship me and it's all good. So there he is in the bottom circle, worshiping himself, which is what he's asking Jesus to do. That's his theology. All you need to do is worship me, not God. He wants all the attention. He wants all the glory. The whole point is, contrapasso means as here, so there. So when you meet a character in this book, the thing that you've got to start thinking about is, watch the way that they conduct themselves and start asking yourself the question, if this is how they're functioning here, how are they functioning there? And of course, here in our case is in the next world, which raises the question, how are they functioning in this world? Everybody with me so far? All right, the second thing, and this is a bit technical, and we're going to run into it in more detail, but I want to make sure you understand at least partially where um, <clears throat> Lewis gets his ideas, is the refrigerium. Now, that's a technical term. It's actually going to come up in the book. That's why I wrote it down in chapter 9. But what you need to understand is there is an, a fairly obscure tradition that comes from somebody called Prudentius, who is the author of the hymn and the hymnal of the Father's Love Begotten. Do we have any... Of the, it's a fabulous hymn. Great early um, Christian thinker in the Latin Roman world. And he, one of the things he says is, maybe there's a possibility of um, people in hell getting a temporary break and kind of a, a temporary holiday. 
And so they get, they get like a day off where it's less hot and less painful and less dangerous. And he didn't get that from nowhere. He almost definitely got it from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, if you remember, where the rich man says, hey, it's, can you get me a little water? It's really hot. So he wants relief. And that idea comes to Jeremy Taylor, who's an Anglican theologian, and from Prudentius and from Jeremy Taylor, it comes to Lewis. So you get this idea of a, the possibility of a temporary holiday in hell, and this is in fact what Lewis is trying to portray. What would happen if everybody in hell got a, the possibility of a temporary holiday, which is actually what the bus is going to give us? And the third thing by way of background is an E.M. Forrester story, for those of you who are into this sort of thing so that you know where Lewis got the bus idea. And, the, and the, this is quite a cool story for those of you who want to do background. E.M. Forrester wrote a story in 1911 called The Celestial Omnibus, which is an allegorical story about an innocent and poetry-loving boy. What a surprise. Lewis liked a story about an innocent and poetry-loving boy. Ha, ha, ha. What a shocker. But he, he, he actually goes to this bus stop that he unexpectedly discovers, and it says to, the sign says after he kind of un packs the thatch off the sign, it says to heaven. And it's actually, in his case, a, a kind of a horse and carriage, what, not what you and I would call a bus, kind of a carriage. But, but the point is, it's a story about a boy and a bus. So the, the refrigerant idea comes from Prudentius, the contrapasso idea comes from Dante, and the bus idea <clears throat> comes from uh, E.M. Forrester's story. You can see, and this is typical Lewis, he just draws from everywhere. We're not even going to get to, you know, one-tenth of his allegorical references in the book. He's just constantly pulling stuff from everywhere. But, it, but it's independent of all those sources. It's its own genius. It's how he weaves them all together. All right, you got all those in the background? You're going to need them later, especially Refrigerium and Contrapasso. But I think it's cool that, that he borrowed the bus from Forster. It's a, it's a lovely idea. By the way, the, the poor boy, when he does the journey, his his family treats him utterly horribly and doesn't believe him. Thinks it's all nonsense. <clears throat> all right. Now, here we go with chapter one. And what I want to do, and I'm hoping that you've read it, is I want to make some observations about the story. This is Lewis at his absolute best as genius when he's writing. <clears throat> so what I want you to notice, first of all, brothers and sisters, is I want you to notice how Lewis works as narrator. If we had time... I go into this in great detail, but one of the things I like to talk about, especially when I teach the Old Testament, is the Bible is a brilliant book at the level of narrative, and one of the really secretly powerful things about the Old Testament is it's laconic. That's L-A-C-O-N-I-C. That is to say, you get all these narratives, like Genesis 22, which is Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah. Remember the story? And if you actually read that story, what's so striking about it is how basic the story is how apparently denuded the language is. It's all, it's all sort of under the surface, and you have to read the story carefully in order to figure out all the emotions and the drama, and boy, is there drama in that story. So Lewis is very much like that. He, he, every, everything he says is crucial, and everything he doesn't say is crucial. So think of something as basic as this, okay? So you all know the Chronicles of Narnia. So in the American series, who can tell me the first book? Not the English series, but the, what's the first book of the seven books? Who knows? Okay, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Thank you. Now, no, what I want you to notice is the, t the title. This is classic Lewis. 
And see, it's a children's story. So you're a child and you find out the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Okay, now, now answer this question. In what order in the story do those characters appear? Which appears first? The wardrobe, which is last in the title, which appears second. And not too long after it starts, but who's not there for the longest time? And so very frequently, one of the things that happens for children who read the story, especially if you start with the American one, and you've got a child like five or six, they start asking this question, well, where's the lion? Well, that's precisely the question Lewis wants them to ask. He hasn't even shown up yet, but he's got you curious as all get out. That's before tea at the beavers, when they start, you know, asking who's the lion, and they hear about the lion, and Lucy gets all upset and says, well, is he quite safe? You know, and all that stuff. But before the line even appears, he's begotten you. So here's the thing. Look at the story and think about what Lewis has done to you. Who's the narrator? You don't know. Where are we? We don't know that either. Where are we going? Don't know that. Who are these people? Don't know that. Where did the bus come from? Don't know that. Where is the bus going? Still don't know that. All those things we don't know. He's beguiling you with a story to arouse your curiosity. But you really want to know the answer to all those things, and you've only read one chapter. It's brilliant stuff. So first of all, notice the quiet, beguiling nature of the narrative, and notice what Lewis doesn't say as well as what he does say. Number two, look at the descriptors of the actual place. It's raining, it's endless, the people are mean, it's dreary, it's dismal, it's dingy, it's empty. It's not dark, but it's not light either, and you never get to a good part of town. Anybody want to go? It's dreadful. He's got you, with all those adjectives, he's got you convinced that it's not any place that you want to be. Look at the last sentence of the first paragraph. But for the little crowd at the bus stop, the whole town... Notice the language, seemed to be empty, seemed to be empty. But as we'll discover later, anything couldn't be further from the truth. It's far from empty. It's just that um, people get disgusted with other people and move. And you can go great distances, and great distances cost you great time, which takes almost no time. And people who are sick of other people just keep moving. And you can, you can make a house just by wishing for a house. The only problem is the houses are no good. So when you get a house and it rains, you get wet. Ugh. What kind of place is that? Number two, that's the place. Notice the people. You get a mix of social classes, which is classic for 1940s England. If we had time, we could talk about American society. This is one of the big changes in our society, also true in England to lesser extent than it's true for us. But if you went to a Boston Red Sox game in the 40s, all the classes of America were in the same stadium. Not anymore. So Lewis is right smack in the middle of the Second World War and all the classes are together. So here, here's the adjective with all these mixed classes. Ready? Waspish, violent, bullying, excluding, fighting, scowling, loud, argumentative. Here's an observation. Not one of the characters in this whole first chapter is described positively except who? The bus driver who doesn't get any lines. (laughs) Everybody is negatively described. The only question is what kind of negative activity and what kind of negative adjective do they get? And I really love the description of the bus driver in contrast. So turning over to 
um, probably the fifth or sixth paragraph in describing the bus. It was a wonderful vehicle, blazing with golden light, heraldically colored. The driver himself seemed full of light, and he only used one hand to drive with. The other he waved before his face as if to fan away the greasy stream of rain. It's a bus that flies. Just think of what kind of imagination. I mean, this is why Lewis is such a vital character. When you're in a dingy uh, Northern Ireland home and your mom's dying and all you can do is play with your brother and come up with an imaginative world, you have to have an imagination that fires your whole life. It's not easy to imagine a flying magical bus in the middle of the Second World War, brothers and sisters. That takes a real heroic imagination. How did he come up with this at all is one thing, but how did he come up with this in the midst of the Second World War is entirely another. It's a remarkable imaginative feat. This is indeed Lewis's baptized imagination. Number four, so first where, second the people, third the contrast with the driver and the bus, fourth, well you get these descriptions of these people's behavior and you find out why some people are leaving the queue. The husband and wife are arguing, the short man gets punched, there's two trouser people Trousered people described as a couple who seem unbelievably self-absorbed, that is to say, absorbed in one another. You get the cheated woman, and you get them all, and you look at them and you say, with the possible exception of the couple, although it's sort of implied, in every situation, somebody's taken offense. <clears throat> now, and 1 Corinthians 13 is read at weddings, uh, but nobody ever pays attention anymore to what it actually says. So I thought it'd be nice to read. Because I do think this is an important part of our Christian witness, and this is a really revealing part of the world. Um, Being slighted and being offended is a huge part of this um, crazy cultural milieu in which we find ourselves. I I look at what's happening at these universities, and they bring person X onto the campus who says such and such, and people get offended, and they have to banish the person. It just makes me... It's just crazy stuff. But the point is, people are so easily offended. Well, I'm offended about how easily offended they are, which is another story for another time. But let me just read you 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the one I want to zero in on, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Total contrast to the people described in this story. Every one of them are irritable and resentful. The only question is exactly how and exactly how is their irritation going to manifest itself. This is one of the ways as Christians that we can stick out like a sore thumb in the cultural context in which we find ourselves, not being easily offended being quick to forgive because we have somebody who forgave us. More about that in the sermon on Sunday if Jesus doesn't come first. All right, then you get to the end of the story. Um, It's really, I get a big kick out of this. The the poor guy at the end, you you, kind of get the sense that he's had a long day and you're not going to find out later who the narrative is um, until later, but it's Lewis himself. And here's Lewis, he finally makes it to the back of the bus, and he's really tired. And he's also, the thing that's tiring him out is everybody seems very high maintenance. 
I mean, look at the question before we get to the actual character. Do they like this place, I asked? Anyway, he meets the tousle-haired guy. Did you catch the tousle-haired guy? He gets, he gets all the way to the end, he gets stuck with this guy. And this is really darkly comic in every sense. Because, and you can think of Lewis, you know, like at the end of his tutorials. Remember I told you the way Oxford tutorial works is there's the undergrad, there's the professor who's already read the, the, the manuscript of the paper, and the student has to read it out loud to the professor. And this goes on one student at a time, day after day. So Lewis is, you know, in, in like tutorial number seven, at, at the end of day three. So he's had 21 tutorials. Can you imagine how exhausting it is? He doesn't want to listen to anybody else's manuscript. Well, here comes Mr. Manuscript. <clears throat> and boy, is he a problem. By the way, I should say, as we go flying by, I get an enormous kick out of the fact that everybody was fighting to get on the bus. And then when the bus finally appeared, did you catch? There's tons of room. <laughs> So there's, there's a lot going on in terms of space and time, but one of the things I want to make sure to mention just in passing is there's a huge problem of misperception, isn't there? Right? Why would they fight to get on a bus if there's tons of room? It's because they're afraid there, is, there isn't. So they don't even understand the bus. They don't even understand the space that's available on the bus. They're completely wrongly understanding the reality of stuff that's right in front of them. Now, this is just hilarious. I'm going to start at the second to last paragraph of the first chapter. I thought you wouldn't mind my tacking on to you, he said, for I've noticed that you feel just as I do about the present company. Now, here we go again with Lewis at his best. He's the narrator, right? And so this is a very detailed evaluation of the narrator. Guess what? The narrator hasn't done anything except slowly make his way to the back of the bus after waiting in the queue. Also, the narrator hasn't said anything. And this guy knows everything about the narrator already. This is projection with a capital P. I've noticed that you feel just as I do about the present company. Why on earth they insist on coming, I can't imagine. They won't like it at all when they get there. They'd really be more comfortable at home. It's different for you and for me. Do they like this place, I asked. As much as they'd like anything, he answered. They've got cinemas and fish and chip chops and advertisements and all the sorts of things that they want. The appalling lack of intellectual life doesn't worry. And then it's italicized, them. I realized as soon as I got here, there'd been some mistake. I ought to have been taken on the first bus, but I fooled about trying to wake people up. I found a few fellows I'd known before, and I tried to form a little circle, but they all seemed to have sunk to the level of their own surroundings. Even before we came here, I'd had some doubts about a man like Cyril Blello. By the way, this is another one of Lewis's hilarious aspects. He, he makes up authors' names, but they're not totally dissimilar from the people that he's singling out. He never liked Saul Bellow his whole life, and that's a clear reference to Saul Bellow. <clears throat> I'd always thought he was working in a false idiom, but he was at least an intelligent one. I could get some criticism worth hearing, even if he was a failure on the creative side. Look at all this evaluation of this guy. He knows everything about everybody. But now he seems to have nothing left but his self-conceit. The last time I tried to read some of my own stuff, but wait a minute, I'd just like you to look at it. You can just feel Lewis's devastation. He's the, the last person on the bus, and here comes this guy to him. He can't go anywhere. He's, he's stuck, realizing with a shudder he was producing from his pocket a thick wad of typewritten paper. I muttered something about having my spectacles and explained, hello, we've left the ground. And um, by the way, for those of you who are cinema people, um, there's a great movie scene that this 
evokes, um, which is fantastically funny, and not really a Christian movie, but um, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> and uh, if you've not seen it, it's great, but I don't know if you know the scene I'm referring to. So Ferris Bueller's Day Off is about a, a very uh, misbehaving kid who's constantly uh, messing about, trying to be a truant at school, and the principal who's trying desperately to catch him and seems to be thwarted at every turn. And, and one particular part of the movie, the principal has been after him, and nothing has gone right the whole day. I mean, it's just been a disgraceful day. And everything that happens is worse than the previous thing. <laughs> and he, he's, he's, the, what happens at the end of the day is he's stuck without a means of transport. And so the only way he can get back to school is to get on one of his own buses. And so he gets on the bus. And of course, there's no seats. So he has to go all the way to the back. And there's one seat next to this very self-focused, insecure-looking girl, and he's, he, he sits next to her, and she looks up at him. Here comes the manuscript equivalent. She says, uh, would you like some gummy bears? He's just had the worst day of his life. And then he, she pauses, and she says, they're warm. <laughs> They've been in my pocket all day. And his whole day just, I mean, that was the worst part of the worst day. But the point is, he, he's got nowhere else to sit. You know, and that, that's this guy. It's like, would you like me to get out my manuscript? And Lewis is going, no, 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 no. That's the last thing I want. Lewis is trapped. He doesn't want to be interfered with. And he's delightfully revealing one of his own, and this is his own self-confession, his own weaknesses, which is he, he really was good at working, but he was only good at working when he could get up his own momentum, and he hated being interrupted when he was really on a roll. And here comes this guy, completely interrupting his, his, his momentum in every sense. <clears throat> now, two final observations, and I'll take questions from you. Make sure that you see the degree to which choices matter with the tousled guy. Don't miss him. Because in the middle of that paragraph, there's a little throwaway line that's beginning to give you an insight into what you're going to be seeing again and again in this story, which is this is a choice that he's made, and, he's, and he's, as a result of the choice he's made, he's been faced with other choices, and he's still making bad choices. Look at what he says. I realized as soon as I got here that there had been some mistake. Right? That's, that's part of the whole, they believe their own propaganda. I ought to have taken the first bus. So he's there by his own choice, and then he had a choice to take the first bus, and he messed that up. But, of course, he was being heroic and helping the other people. And I found a few fellows before, and I tried to form a little circle, you see. And there it is, the resistance circle, right? And, and the whole point is this is a circle of resistance of people who are going to reign in hell rather than reign in heaven. But... They all seem to have sunk to the level of their own surroundings, parenthesis, unlike me, who've clearly risen above my surroundings. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, this is, this is incredible self-deception at every conceivable level. He's, he deserves to be there. All his choices have led him there. And he's the one that refused to get on the first bus, and he's not taking responsibility for that either. So he's not taking responsibility for the fact that he's there already. He's not taking responsibility for the fact that he missed... By, by his choice, the first bus. And then he says he t- formed a circle so that they wouldn't have to choose another bus. And that didn't work either, but that was all everybody else's fault. And this is another theme that we're going to see throughout the book that Lewis absolutely loves and is a big part of hell, and that is blame shifting. You're going to see it acutely. So next chapter, one of the people you're going to meet is Napoleon. And Napoleon is, it's, it's really funny the way it's portrayed in chapter two, because uh, 
he's way, way, way out of town. But two guys are kind of curious, because you know, Napoleon's not that far back in history, and they've read about him. So they do this huge journey to get to Napoleon's house, and there's Napoleon. All he does is, is, is mutter to himself all day long and walk up and down, and he never stops. And here's what he's saying. It was the fault of the English. It was the fault of the French. It was the fault. Every, it's literally his cadences, and he just has a liturgical course. It's all everybody else's fault. And that's all that they see him doing in his house. And the reason he's moved so far away is he couldn't get along with anybody, and he didn't like any of his neighbors, so he just kept moving. All blame shifting. It's not his fault that he's here. It's not his fault that he missed the first bus. It's not his fault that he tried to form a circle of rebellion. None of it's his fault. It's all the other people's fault. And it's there in the Dives and Lazarus rich man uh, parable where you sort of read carefully between the lines. You can, you can sense that Dives is basically saying to the Lord, well, you know, you didn't give me enough information. That's what's really clearly implied, you know. If they had Moses and the prophets like you were supposed to give me, right, that's clearly the implication. There's blame shifting all through that. <laughs> And there's blame shifting all the, all the way through this. So choices matter. And the other thing I want to make sure that you note, just in closing, because it's so contemporary, and I'm right at the edge of my time, is I want to make sure to note the response to the bus driver in the middle. I mentioned how glorious he was, and of course you get the glorious bus, but it's quite striking the fact that he doesn't have any lines. And look at what happens to him. This is meanness personified. A growl went up. Everybody see where I am? It's the paragraph that begins, it was a wonderful vehicle. A I'm right in the middle. A growl went up from the queue. Looks as if he had a good time of it. Bloody pleased with himself. My dear, why can't he behave naturally? Thinks himself too good to look at us. Who does he imagine that he is? All that gilding and purple, I call it a wicked waste. Why don't they spend some of the money on their house property down here? God, I'd like to give him one in the ear hole. This is all in reaction to someone who just appeared to do his job and hasn't had any lines. <clears throat> Jesus put it this way in John's gospel. If the world hates you, this is 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, and because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Lewis is, is painting a very, very honest portrayal of the way that a lot of people in the world naturally respond to Christians. Out of his experience at Oxford, where he was ruthlessly teased, maligned, and ostracized at an incredible level, much of his professional career. All right, so we made it through the preface and one chapter. QED. Comments or questions from you all about the content? Anything that struck you that I didn't say, please feel free to chime in. Aristotle, the works of Aristotle. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it's hard to, and the tobacco, it, tobacconist he has in there too. It's, it's hard to know, but it, he's trying to convey the fact that it's, it's an apparently ordinary town, but it's, that's a secular ethic. So it's, that's, 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 that's on the way to Christian ethics, but nowhere near as far.
So that's about, that's about, that's one of the few hints of a positive thing. He, he's basically highlighting the best book in the shop. The best book in the shop. And if that's the best they've got, they've got a lot of work to do. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, just, a, just an important reference. Um, he says in one of his letters that he's probably drawing on um, Dante for that reference. Um, there's a lot of figures in the, the, uh, the whole threefold uh, divine comedy that, that, that show up that have beautiful features. Beatrice comes to mind. But that's, that's his way of signaling. It's a kind of an angelic. An angel in the Bible means either messenger or angel, either one. So it's that kind of conveying divine authority. The, the point is a person under authority who conveys authority, I think, is why you get the capital. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, he's ascending on the bus, and what, what's the question? Is he, is he ascending? Yeah. Yep. Several, several hundred feet below us, already half hidden in the rain, were the wet roofs of the town. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, it's, it's one of the things, it, that descent and ascent is actually a huge theme for him throughout all his writing because he sees it in nature. It's a big feature of his book, Miracles. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things, he, I mean, because you have the descent in the incarnation and you have the descent into hell. And that only happens once, and only God can descend and become smaller in order to make things bigger in the way that redeems people. So, that, so you've got, it's a big part of his whole spirituality, but I think he's drawing from Dante and the journey up. I mean, the bus is ultimately in hell, going to heaven. That's, that's the part that, that's crucial for our purposes. And what would happen if you get all the people who are in hell and give them a chance to go to heaven if they wanted and some you can't even get on the bus. But what would happen to the ones you actually get on the bus? That's his, that's his fantasy. And the answer is, we'll find out. But the grass is going to hurt their feet. So gear up. Yes, sir. Right. Possibly, but also the fact that it's capital, full of light, but also the fact that it's capitalized. And I think he's, he's very much, the, the, the question is, is the driver an angel? And I, th- I, think, I think, for me, definitely. It's kind, of a ni- it's kind of a nice story. This is your assignment. Let's just, let's just try this and see what happens. Because he does say it's a supposal. 
Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. that. The book is dedicated to Barbara Wall. I've, I was afraid somebody was going to ask me that question. <laughs> I, was, I saw that this afternoon. I thought, I haven't looked it up yet. So obviously super significant to, to Lewis. I, he was involved with so many people. I can't answer that. Sorry. I'll, I'll look it up and I'll get back to you. Uh, I mean, all, all of his, tons of his friends, people like Dorothy Sayers, Tolkien, um, lots of the Inklings, his closest friends. Pro- probably is, one of his secretaries or something. That's, that's a good thought. All right? Go in peace to love and serve the Lord and read chapters 2, 3, and 4.